Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As Vicar stated earlier, we're beginning a new sermon series this week that will last the next three weeks surrounding Reformation, simply called Here We Stand. The graphic that's on the screen comes from our Wisconsin Lutheran Synod as it is the theme for the next two years of our synod as well. It comes because we're in the 500th anniversary of maybe one of Luther's most famous quotes. You might remember that Luther in 1521 stood before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms. Maybe some of you like me were reviewing the Diet of Worms when you were younger and it, it looks just like Diet of Worms and maybe you even thought that Luther had kind of a special diet when he showed up for this hearing. But a diet is simply an assembly, a formal assembly to hold a hearing and Worms was the imperial city in Germany in which it was held. Do you remember why Luther was called there? He was called because of a papal bull that had said that Luther needed to recant his teachings that were critical of the church and the pope. Critical because Luther was seeking reformation of the church. After a prayerful night, Luther stood before the Holy Roman Emperor with a shaky voice but with the confidence that only God could give and he spoke the words that are on the screen. Unless I am convinced by proof from Scripture or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not retract, for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Here I stand, Luther said. Convinced that what he was teaching was based on the truths of God's word, that's a legacy that we seek to carry on, to base everything that we know, everything that we teach, everything that we believe on the word of God. So let's use those words of Luther. Here we stand and today discuss standing on God's grace. As we do so, let's note first of all that we marvel at, at God's deep love for us and then rejoice that our salvation is free. Vicar read earlier Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. I'd like to zero in on verses 8 and 9 today where the Apostle Paul writes this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. If you listened as those verses were read before, Ephesians chapter 2, those first 10 verses, is a really succinct way of describing God's entire plan of salvation. It starts with sin and then it moves on to grace and from grace to faith and from faith to works. The Apostle Paul has to remind us who we are so that he can drive home his point that it is by grace we've been saved. Why do we need to hear where we stand? Well, it's because that's what makes us marvel about God's grace all the more. He starts with reminding us that we were dead in sin, that there wasn't one finger that we could lift to help God when it came to our salvation. You might remember that in his explanation to the third article, Martin Luther wrote these words, I cannot by my own, I believe that I cannot by my own thinking or choosing believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. That's where we stand before God if we were left to ourselves, dead in sin. But did you hear how the apostle went on? But we've been made alive. Made alive in Christ. 
The Holy Spirit has called us by the gospel and enlightened us with his gifts. We stand before God on the basis of the life that Jesus has given us. And Paul concludes, it is by grace you have been saved. Maybe you notice that that the Apostle Paul actually stacks up a whole bunch of phrases that mean basically the same thing to, to drive home his point so that we don't miss it. It is by grace you've been saved. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Really all mean the same thing, don't they? But Paul wants us to see that it isn't about us. Our salvation doesn't have to do with us. It's all in the hands of our God. And that's a great place for it to be. Paul has to give us that reminder because it's not how we think by nature. By nature, we think that we have to work for good things. That if you want good things to come to you in life, it takes effort. It takes perseverance. It takes a lot of hard work. You see, deeply ingrained in each one of us is this idea that to stand before God, there's something that we can do. There's something that we have to do. Maybe God will will give us some of his goodness, but, but there must be something that I have to do to at least meet God somewhere, right? I asked in first service if I could share a little bit of Latin with you and then I answered my own question because I'm going to do it anyway. But our church fathers had word to describe that. It's called the opinio legis. That's a fancy way of saying our opinion of the law. Maybe you don't really recognize that phrase, but you know how it works. Here's how our opinion of the law works. We know that we deserve punishment when we are bad. If I disobey, if I do something against the law, I know that there might be punishment that comes my way. Have you ever had this happen to you? You're driving down the interstate and off in the median you see your friendly police officer and instantly your foot slides to the brake, right? Just in case just in case you were going a little bit too fast. You see, we know. We know that when we disobey, that that punishment could be coming. But did you know that, that our opinion of the law also makes the opposite side of that true? That we believe that we should be rewarded when we're good? That if we follow God's will for our lives, that if we obey him, that somehow God might owe us something? As if to say, see God, I'm, I'm better than most people. What's in it for me? the devil is really good at what he does, isn't he? You see, the devil despises God's grace and he wants you to despise it too. And so whatever the devil can do to take our focus off of God and put it squarely on ourselves, he is going to do. He wants you to think that you can earn it, that you can work for it. And that can only lead to one of two bad places. This is where Satan wants to take you. He wants to take you to a place of pride where you can pat yourself on the back and say, see, you you owe me, God. It's all good. Or he wants to take us to the opposite, to despair, to think, what's the use? I can't do what God is asking me to do anyway. Neither of those are good. Do you see why we marvel at God's deep love for us? Because God's way is so different. God doesn't ask you to meet him halfway. He doesn't ask you to be everything that you can be for your own salvation. He did it in your place. He sent Jesus 
to suffer and die for you, to rise again, to guarantee his victory. That's what we mean when we say grace. I suppose we could say grace is, is God's love for, for miserable sinners. We could say that, that grace is kindness for those who are unworthy. It's compassion for the lost. Grace is all about action. It's God doing for us. I want to share a couple stories with you today to demonstrate what grace looks like. And you can decide which story describes grace better. They're both about first grade boys and one is a story from my personal life and the other one is a story told by Dr. Mark Paustchen. I'll start with the story from my personal life. There's a little cow pill on the board that you see. That was in my first grade classroom, a prop for a play that was upcoming. And somehow during the course of the day, that pill was handled and broken. Well, our teacher who erred on the side of strictness, should I say, was not very happy that the prop was broken. And so she said, until someone confesses, there will be no recess until that happens. I was a first grade boy. My only reason for going to school was recess. And so when the first recess came and went and we weren't able to go outside, when the second recess came and went and we didn't go outside for recess, I started getting frustrated. And I decided in my own head, you know what, I'm just going to confess. I'm going to say I did it because I just want to get outside for recess again. Well, it turned out the actual person who did it confessed in tears and received mercy. But I was ready. I was ready to throw myself on the mercy of our teacher just to get outside. Maybe a little grace in that story, right? Here's the story that Dr. Mark Paustchen tells of the first grade boy sitting in his desk eating his lunch, looks over in the row next to him and sees a little girl who looks worried, tears a little bit in her eyes, and he realizes she accidentally wet her pants. He knows. He knows the ridicule that's coming her way. And so he gets up, takes his apple juice cup with him, trips himself and spills it into her lap. Now he becomes the object of ridicule. The clumsy one who couldn't see his way straight without spilling on the neighbor next to him and she's comforted by her classmates. Do you see the difference between the two? Yes, it might have been gracious to be willing to take the fall for someone else but, but I was hoping for something in return, a chance to go out for recess. The young man who took the ridicule for his classmate received nothing in return. Isn't that exactly how Jesus works for us? Jesus took your humiliation. He took the humiliation of my sin and he was punished as if he were the worst criminal of all time, nailed to a cross while we receive comfort. That's God's grace in action. That's how God deals with sinners, with love and compassion. That's why the Apostle Paul says it this way, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. A gift. That's what Paul calls God's grace. And that's so fitting, isn't it, if you think about it? Think about all of the occasions on which you might give or receive gifts. Right? Maybe birthday or Christmas or weddings. Maybe you're one of those people that just gives gifts to others just because. But would you agree with this? Very seldom 
does someone giving a gift not know the person to whom they are giving the gift, right? Generally, we have relationships with people with whom we give gifts. We, we love them. And those gifts are a token of our love and our friendship. And those gifts come with no strings attached, right? Consider the giver of every good and perfect gift, our Father in heaven. He knows you. He knows exactly what you need. He loves you. And in that love, he has given you the greatest gift, the gift of eternal salvation through his son, Jesus. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we have to work for. It's a gift from our God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All right, I need a show of hands. How many of you have started your Christmas shopping already? Go ahead, raise your hands. We do have a couple. Maybe some of you are a little worried about all of the containers that are off in the, you know, not being unloaded in California and you might not get your Christmas gifts on time. Maybe you're just super organized. Good for you. All right, how about this? How many of you out there are people that when it's time to get those Christmas gifts, you agonize about making sure that the gift that you give is appropriate and as near perfect as you can make it? Go ahead, raise your hand if you're that type of gift giver. Okay, we have quite a few of those. Gift cards. That's all I'm going to say, right? Can't go wrong. All right? How about maybe some of you have had this experience. Are you the type of person that has received a gift from somebody else who you love, who you know they were trying to do something nice for you, but what they gave you was almost useless to you? That can be frustrating too, can't it? Now consider God's gift, the perfect gift, right? He knew our needs. He knows how to well supply those needs and he sent the perfect gift in Jesus to win for us the forgiveness of sins and grant us the eternal life that we need. No wonder the Apostle Paul says there's no reason for us to boast. There's no boasting because everything about your salvation relies not on you, but on God. It's all God who has done what is necessary to save us. And I know there's that part of us that first objects to that and says, well, wait a minute, can't I be at least a little good? Can't I at least meet God partway? But that can only lead to doubt. You see, your salvation is completely in the hands of your God. And that's the absolute safest place it can possibly be. Just a note about works here. I know the sermon is about grace, but if you listened to the reading before, you heard the Apostle Paul write in verse 10 that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The goal of this devotion, the sermon today, was not to downplay that God wants us to do good things. He does. But that those good things in no way contribute to our salvation. That's already done. Instead, our works simply become a thank you to the God who already said to us, you're mine and an heir of eternal life. You see, that's what grace is all about. It's, it's free. We rejoice that God has presented us with the gift of salvation and eternal life and we rejoice because it fills us with confidence. It fills us with confidence that the Lord himself will rescue us from every evil attack and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. It fills us with comfort to know that the one who planted faith in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And it gives us the foundation, a foundation for our faith and life, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in chapter 1. 
It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If there is boasting to be done, it's about the gracious God we have who's claimed us as his own and is leading us to our home in heaven. Some takeaways from the sermon today. Number one, God's love for us is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus. If you think grace, think action. That's how God demonstrated his grace and what he did. Maybe you heard it in the gospel lesson read earlier when Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Number two, our salvation comes to us by the grace of God who pardons our sins. There is nothing we can do. Maybe I could state that even better. There is nothing that needs to be done because it's already accomplished by our Savior Jesus. Number three, God's gift is free and the foundation for peace. We know where we're going. We know what God's grace means. It means a life with him forever in heaven. And that's the source of all of our strength for this life and the life that is to come. You see, it doesn't matter what happens today, what happens tomorrow in my life, what's happening in the world around me. Nothing can change the grace that our Heavenly Father has demonstrated to us and separate us from his love. Maybe it's just kind of difficult to define grace in words. I've seen people take the word grace and use it as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's pretty good. Maybe you learned back in confirmation class that grace is God's undeserved love for sinners. That works too. But really the best way to see what grace is all about is to look at Jesus and what he did. You see, if grace had a face, it would be the face of our Savior Jesus, who in love came to this world to take our punishment on himself, who in love went to the cross, who in love rose from the dead to guarantee your victory. You have the sure hope of eternal life with him through the forgiveness of sins. And that's the grace on which you stand every single day. We can say with Luther, here we stand on God's grace. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.